Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. We really appreciate you joining us today and listening on the Good Judgment Podcast. Absolutely. But Tane, today's episode is going to involve, I don't know, a confession. A confession that occasionally you and I are less than perfect. Speak for yourself, Wade. Uh, no, seriously, Wade and I are uh, annually involved in teaching uh, the new judge training uh, for superior court judges in the state. We spend a lot of time researching and writing for the podcast, and uh, these projects help us both look at the law and think about how we do things in court. Just like all judges, we try to do things correctly when we are on the bench, but occasionally we also get things wrong. That's true, either inadvertently, I would say never intentionally, but inadvertently. Today's episode is going to address Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.5, which makes it clear that judges are not to participate in plea discussions. I think everybody knows that, and I think everybody would agree that that's that's the correct rule. And I would guess even further that judges do not affirmatively try to get involved with plea discussions. But sometimes we use sloppy language and make other inadvertent misstatements that could have us running afoul of the law. And so before we proceed, Tane, we need to remind everyone of our disclaimer that's always true, but we really need to point it out here, and we haven't restated it for a while. The cases we discuss on this podcast, especially this episode, usually involve our friends and colleagues on the bench. We are never, ever attempting to embarrass any judge or anyone else for that matter. Except ourselves. We do that inadvertently as well. But we can all learn from the collective experiences of our brothers and sisters on the bench, and this is just another example of that. Yeah, that's true, Wade. You know, a few weeks ago, we discussed judicial comments, um, which prohibit judge from making certain comments in the presence of the jury. Uh, Wade was even a presenter on that topic during the video series that was recently made available to Superior Court judges as, as a part of the Winter Conference that we had to conduct virtually. Today's episode deals with a different issue, but both topics have some similarities in that judges can make inadvertent statements and find themselves running afoul of the rules from time to time. But let's get right to it. What does Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.5 say, Wade? So it starts off, Tane, with A, and, and I, know, I know how you feel about this. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. So true. So true. But the first sentence is worthy of reading. 33.5a, the trial judge should not participate in plea discussions, period. Now that is fairly straightforward. That's among the most straightforward sentences we have in the uniform rules. Kudos to our legislators for uh, making that one understandable. Well, now that's from our uniform rules group. Oh, I'm sorry. Kudos to us. (laughs) So, but there's more to this rule, and we probably need to think about it, okay? Subsection B, again. Reading law 
during a podcast is not awesome. And it remains not awesome, right, Tane? Amen, brother. But I do think we need to hear this. I wouldn't do it just because. So if a tentative plea agreement has been reached and everybody says that the trial judge can consider it, they can disclose that tentative agreement to the judge and the reasons why they are agreeing to it. And then the next sentence is important, which I guess is the second sentence of subsection B. The judge may then indicate to the prosecuting attorney and defense counsel whether the judge will likely concur in the proposed disposition if the information developed in the plea hearing or presented in the pre-sentence report is consistent with the representations made by the party. In other words, the judge can say, I'm not inclined to do that, or I am inclined to do that, assuming all the facts are as you say. If the judge concurs, but the final disposition differs from what the judge concurred in, then the judge has to shall put on the record what it is that changed between what they heard, I guess, pre-hearing and the final disposition of the case. But the rule tells us, pretty clearly, Tane, not to participate, but then it gives us this window for limited... I don't know if you're really saying we're participating in the plea agreement. We're just telling them, as a preliminary matter, whether we will or will not accept what it is they've worked out. Yeah, it essentially allows them not to waste their time to go about presenting a uh, plea that it doesn't look like would be uh, accepted by the judge in the first place. So, Tame, when you were going through all of the rights that you go through with defendants in a guilty plea, one of the big overarching themes is you're trying to make make sure that this plea is what? Knowingly and voluntarily entered. Exactly. So when the trial judge gets involved in negotiations, Tane, the, the appellate courts have sort of talked about that participation as being a problem for voluntariness, correct? Yeah, there's kind of a theme that runs through these cases that says things like judicial participation in the plea negotiations processes is prohibited by court rule in this state and is prohibited as a constitutional matter when it's when it is so great as to render a guilty plea involuntary. And the idea there is, Wade, if I'm understanding it correctly, that because we're the judge, we might be able to unduly influence a defendant to take a plea that otherwise might not be voluntarily accepted. What, what's the language that the courts use on that? This is the one that you keep using for yourself all the time. <laughs> Due to the force and majesty of the judiciary. Ah, uh, Yes. The court's participation in the plea negotiation may skew a defendant's decision-making skills and render that plea involuntary because the defendant may disregard other considerations or proper considerations and waive rights based solely upon the trial court's stated inclination as to sentence. Now, Tane, we're reading some case law, and and that is, that is also not awesome for podcasts. I think we've decided that. But... Tell everybody where they can find these cases that keep talking about these issues and can find this language that we're using from these cases and statutes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, um, you can always go to goodjudgepod.com, and the outline for today's podcast will be included on that. So, Tane, a lot of these cases deal with guilty pleas, and, and, you know, sometimes we have these issues that we come across. You remember – I don't know, it's probably been four or five months ago, we talked about our good friend, the Collier decision. 
Yes, yes, I do. Well, that deals with defendants having the right to appeal their guilty plea, which came as a bit of a surprise to me, and I had to learn more about that. But a lot of these cases have been overruled by Collier, but not for the reason we're citing them. They were, they were right. overruled because the, the trial court said they couldn't file an appeal from a guilty plea and that and out of a t- an out-of-time appeal and all of that. Right. Basically overruled so, on other grounds. Yeah, so don't be confused. This is still good case law with respect to the issues that we're talking about here today. So, Wade, if, if the judge is not to participate, does that mean that the judge needs to and, and absolutely has to just remain mute during the entire process? No, and, and you know that, and I do too. We talk about this from time to time, the things that we do during a plea colloquy and, and even maybe prior to trial, we actually have to say some things. And some of those things could be ominous if you're a defendant and you're hearing it for the first time. That's probably problematic all by itself. But the maximum sentence, for example, mm-hmm. or, or if they have recidivism notice, how that will impact their eligibility for parole. I mean, that's that Alexander case that says we have to tell them that. So we're not just remaining moot. Mute. Sorry, mute. not moot. Um, sometimes we're sometimes moot. We're moot. Usually, yeah, usually we're mute. <laughs> um, you know, English is such a hard thing for me sometimes. Um, right, right. But we don't have to remain mute, but we do have to be very call- careful when we are talking back to the lawyers. In theory, the only thing we are communicating is I'm not inclined to grant that sentence. I am inclined to grant that sentence. Now, Tane, based on what has been told me up to this point. <laughs> correct. And, and and one of the things that I have seen a lot of our colleagues do is they go, well, I'm not willing to do 10 years, but I would probably do 15. Yes. And that's going over the line of what's permissible according to these cases. To yeah. Say, I, I would say counter offers are bad. Yeah. <laughs> Where the judge is making the counter yeah. offer. This is just one you can kind of file away in your brain. If you're making the counter offer, probably not a good idea. Yeah. You, you probably shouldn't be involved in that. Um, but so we have some case law that, that helps you see exactly what it is the judge can and can't do. The judge can communicate its willingness to accept a particular plea agreement independently negotiated by the parties. But it's inappropriate for the trial court to tell a defendant that a rejection of the plea proposal rules will result in greater punishment in the event of a conviction. Now, Tane, we're going to talk about this for a few in a few minutes in the context of a trial tax. But let's let's just know we shouldn't be in the back and forth of five years, ten years, probation, parole, all of that. We we shouldn't be we should just sure. say whether we are inclined to grant that sentence or not. Now let me right. ask you something we haven't talked about uh, you know in advance of today. I know you don't talk to defendants about the impact of parole unless they have a recidivism notice for some reason that's not Correct. being waived as a part of the agreement. Does that enter into your thought process, though? When, when you are thinking 10 years, 15 years to serve, three years, five years to serve, is there a part of you that says, it's going to be paroled? Should I even care? No, I, I try not to even engage in that. Um, and I'll tell you why, because if there's a consideration there that's important, 
I would imagine that it is something that has been a part of the negotiations process between the prosecutor and the defense counsel. I mean, it's not really something that I need to concern myself with um, in terms of how or when the defendant might be paroled. Um, that's something for his lawyer to speculate about or the, the prosecutor to speculate and talk to the defense counsel about. But by the time it comes to me, that's not something that I generally put in my matrix of trying to make a determination of accepting or rejecting. All right. So, Tane, have you ever done this? Do you ever say you have a motion to suppress that might be dispositive depending on how you rule or at least dispositive if it's granted? Do you ever put on the record or ask the prosecutor or somehow allow it to be, you know, sort of make it be a part of the record that a plea offer is being withdrawn if we start calling witnesses in this hearing? Do you ever get involved in that conversation? No. I Again, I don't think that's really something that I need to be involved in. Now, on the flip side of that, it is completely appropriate for a judge to ask a prosecutor whether an offer will remain open um, uh, until after a suppression hearing is concluded. In other words, I, for 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 me to say to the prosecutor, is this is this something that that will still be available after I conclude the hearing that's scheduled for Wednesday or something like that? Um, because it is appropriate for the judge to understand what the parameters of the agreement are, just not to renegotiate them. And that's in a case called Grant. Again, it's in our outline on, on page five of this particular outline that you can find on goodjudgepod.com. So when the when the negotiations break down, Tane, they've, they've said they've tried to talk about it and they've tried to figure out an agreement and it's just not going to work. Is it permissible for the, the judge, the trial judge, to now say, okay, so here are your options. You can either enter a non-negotiated plea or go to trial. Now, we need to make a little speed bump here before we talk, start talking about this Brassfield case. Speed bump being we currently have law that says – the state has a right to object to the defendant entering a plea. So let's just hit that speed bump and keep going because I don't want to get sidetracked in all the details of that because it may have to be if there are charge bargains or if there is sentence recommendations. I don't want to get involved in that. Just, just, just this is a 2000 case. The law has changed on this. So everybody just hit the speed bump when you hear you have the right to accept a non-negotiated plea without the consent of the state. But this Brassfield case says that, yeah, in Brassfield, it says that it is okay for you as a judge to tell a defendant when negotiations break down, okay, well, here are your other options. Number one, uh, you may potentially be able to enter a, a non-negotiated plea. And secondly, uh, you may go to trial and, uh, and have your case heard either, either before the judge or before a jury. And so, folks, the, the, the key thing here is that that's not untrue. That's not coercive. That's just trying to say, defendant, which of these two options would you like to follow? And just making the defendant aware of his or her options at that particular time. Now, Tane, we've talked about sloppy language. Uh, we talked about it in context because we know our judges aren't trying to mess up plea agreements or trying mm -hmm. to get involved in plea negotiations or trying to comment on the evidence. But sometimes we use sloppy language and we get sort of caught. Let me ask you this. Before you start your trial, are you putting the maximum sentence on the record? 
I am. I always conduct what we call a fry hearing. It's just because of the the case that it came out of. But um, before I go to trial in any case, I think this is not mandatory, but I think it's always been uh, referred to as best practice is to make sure that on the record, there is a record of what plea uh, offers were made. Uh, I I check to see if those were conveyed from the defense attorney to the defendant. Um, I check to make sure that the defendant understood uh, what was being offered. And then I make a determination as, and then I, I'm sorry, and then I also have the prosecutor put onto the record the minimum potential minimums and maximums and also whether there are some recidivist issues that, that are in consideration. And then I make a determination on the record as to whether the defendant's rejection of that plea offer was um, uh, know, willingly and knowingly made. I do the same thing. Although this episode is really focused on Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.5, be aware that 33.8 of the Uniform Superior Court Rules list the issues that the trial judge must detail in a plea colloquy. So whether you're headed towards a plea or headed towards a trial, in the trial scenario, you have the Fry case. In the plea colloquy, you have the other uniform superior court rule that says you must, as a constitutional matter, tell the defendant the maximum possible sentence they could be facing for that offense. Correct. So, Tane, the other thing, I want to make sure and, and this is candid and this is honest. This isn't um, being farcical. I want to make sure that any defendant who is deciding whether or not to plead guilty or take a plea offer as opposed to go to trial understands exactly what is at stake. That, that's not that's not a flippant response. I'm not trying to just play lip service to that. that that's a serious concern of mine. I know that if it was my brother or my parent or whatever or me, I would want to make sure somebody understood, just make sure I didn't misunderstand what I was facing as the, the possible ramification for the decision that could be life-changing that I'm about to make. So I specifically um, go through this as well. And as we indicated earlier, the Alexander case that's cited in our outline, Tane, where could they find that? On goodjudgepod.com, Wade. Exactly. So that we are required to advise them that if there is recidivist notice that impacts their ability, their um, availability of parole or eligibility for parole, that we have to be say we have to let them know it's not being waived as a part of the plea agreement, and it could impact that that decision. We don't have to go into how it might impact, but just that it will might impact that decision. I'll tell you one other thing, Wade, and this isn't really something you and I talked about previously, but. Um, Something that I've done several times, and I'm sure you probably have done something similar. Um, I have also done things to facilitate um, the defendant's discussions with important people about the possibility of entering a guilty plea or not. Elaborate, because I know exactly what you're talking about now, and I'm smiling. Um, Because if the defendant says, I want to reject this plea offer, but I'd also like to discuss it with my mom. And it's a 18, 19, 20 year old, or I don't care if he's 27 years old, but he wants to talk to uh, the most important person in the world (laughs) about that plea before he decides whether to enter that plea pre-trial or reject it. There have been many times where I have said, Sheriff, is it okay if we uh, allow him to speak to his mother 
you know, here in the courtroom or whatever we're, you know, whatever we're able to arrange. I'm not getting involved in the plea negotiations. I'm not changing what's being offered or what's not being offered, but I am facilitating him being able to put to, to talk to the person who may be the most important person in his world before he makes the most important decision he'll ever make potentially. And, you know, to be candid, if they are in custody, they know everything they say is being recorded. So, so they really not able to have a, now, I'm not going to let them touch. I'm not going to let them hold each other. If, they, if they're going to have right. to give up their secret. What I try to do, frankly, is putting – we have an attorney interview area in the holding cell. And I will let – I will tell – because usually only lawyers can go in there. I mean, that's obvious. And I, and I tell the bailiffs I won't allow them to go in there on this circumstance. And I'll let the attorney and the mom, just the mom, just the mom and the aunt, you know, whatever – because, but I do sort of reiterate to the defendant, sir, you understand this is your decision, not your mama's decision, not your uncle, uncle's and aunt's decision, but your decision. But at the end of the day, if you want to talk to him, I don't mind giving you five minutes to give you that opportunity. Yeah. All right. So, Tane, we put the max on the, the max sentence on the record before trial. And as we're going through the, the plea colloquy, because we want it to be fair and it's because it's because part of the rules but you know Tane there are times that you and I have handled motions for new trial and or they've been some appeals where it turns out the lawyer testifies I'm not sure when I told them about the plea offer I'm not sure if I told them about the plea offer they made it clear they didn't want to plead anything so I didn't waste everybody's time by telling them the plea offer that's another reason why I put it on the record, not to try to push anybody one way or another, but to make sure they understand what the plea offer is. But Tane, talk to the people a little bit about the difference between how you phrase that. Sure. Um, you know, sometimes we, uh, we're, our language is a little bit sloppy and, uh, and we don't, we don't say things exactly the way we want or, or that we should, um, for the, for the lawyer to say, I'm not sure if I did this, or I'm not sure if I, whatever is not good. That's not going to look good on our record. And so, um, so I want to tell the defendant <laughs> what they could be sentenced to, as opposed to what they will be sentenced to. That's the best practice because we have had brothers and sisters on the bench who have said, now, if you go to trial, just understand that my policy is to give you the maximum sentence on this particular uh, crime or something along those lines. And, you know, we're not supposed to prejudge those sentences in cases, and we're not supposed to have a set formula uh, for, and we're sure not supposed to tell the defendant, hey, if you go to trial, I'm going to give you a whole lot more than what they're offering you in this plea deal here. So, Wade, is, uh, is that your policy as well? Absolutely, and, and that's yet another tease for the topic of trial tax. We'll talk about it in just a moment because it is one of those just verboten sort of things you just can't say, and it's a bad policy to have as well. But just understand that our, our Supreme Court has said, look, there is a very serious difference between an explanation of potential consequences and a virtual promise, you know, that that's phrased sort of in conditional language, and a promise or positive statement that what will happen if you are convicted or if you enter a plea. So 
there are plenty of cases where people have alleged that the judge violated the rule, and it turned out they didn't violate the rule because they said if you were sentenced, the maximum you could be sentenced to, and that's very different than, say, will or shall. But I will tell you that in a relatively recent case called Winfrey, and, and some one of our, our colleagues was in that case, and somebody we both respect a lot, and, and let me just read this quote, and, and I know that, that – it's not awesome, but let me read this quote because I think it's worth it. Let us be plain, says the Supreme Court. If a trial judge communicates, either explicitly or implicitly, to a criminal defendant that his sentence will be harsher, and that's in italics, if he rejects a plea deal and is found guilty at trial, then Rule 33.5a has been violated and the plea will may be found involuntary. So, when you go through some of the cases, and we have some of the cases cited here, you can read what the judge said, and, and, and in, the, in the abstract, it may not sound awesome, but it's because you're hyper-technical and you're looking for that here. When you're in the back and forth in the colloquy, not in the, the fire zone or whatever, in the, in the, in the fire of, of battle, because you're not a player in that. You are the judge. You're not a player. But when things are being said back and forth, it varies. It's entirely possible you made a misstatement. But when you start making sure you communicate could be, possibly, maximums, facing, if you're convicted, those sorts of words, just be aware that's going to probably turn the outcome of these decisions. So, Tane, with all that set up, I've always called it a trial tax. Have you heard it that as called that as well? Yeah, sure. So tell everybody what a trial tax is and why it's so incredibly impro improper. Sure. So essentially, a trial tax is you as the judge communicating to the defendant that uh, if he or she should decide to go to trial, that there will be a potential penalty to be paid for that uh, if the defendant is found guilty. In other words, uh, okay. Well, you're making your decision now and be sure that you understand that if you go to trial, you know, and, and you're being offered 15 years here, well, you're not going to get 15 years as a sentence uh, at the end of trial. So you mean for punishing somebody for exercising their constitutional right to go to trial is a problem? My understanding is that that is frowned upon. Yes. Yes. Wade. So if you, what about if you just tell the, the defendant, if you cost the taxpayers of this county money, you are not getting this same sentence if you go to trial and are convicted. Is that cool? That is explicitly forbidden. Uh, I believe the case is Gibson versus the state. Yeah, and then or and, and there was another quote that I don't know that I quoted verbatim. I mean verbatim. Excuse me. Putting the state to the test. If you put the state to the test, I'm not going to give you the same benefit. Now, Tane, not being flippant, but seriously. I absolutely understand if a judge were to find that the sentence that was proposed as part of a plea offer because the defendant accepted responsibility for his or her actions, that is entirely different and then went to trial and, and accepted no responsibility for the actions, you know, the two mm -hmm. extremes, that that would be a different reason for a judge might impose a different sentence than what was offered as a part of a plea offer. But sure. costing money or going to trial or whatever – that's that's no good and and well, and I'm just telling you you just can't use any of that it will result in punishment and those kind of things. Well, and I'll offer this Wade if 
if at some point in time, one of us finds ourselves um, speaking directly to a defendant about whether they do or do not want to accept a plea offer that is being made to them, maybe we ought to think, why am I even saying this? Because if you think about it, while we do have a responsibility to make sure that they understand um, the consequences, things like, is this offer still open after, you know, today, uh, prosecutor or not? Um, versus, well, just understand that I, as the judge, may do something, you know, much more, you know, horrible to you if you go to trial. Um, you might just want to think about, hey, why am I even saying this? And, and stop yourself before you potentially get into trouble. You know, Tim, we, and we're, I really don't think that we have any advantage from reading some of these examples that we've put in the outline. I just don't think that there's any way, because these are, um, examples that were plucked out of transcripts and, and without of a, a larger conversation between some of our colleagues and defendants and defense counsel. But rather than go through those, I think it's time for me to make my confession. Are you okay with that? Sure. Go ahead, Wade. I'm I, all ears. I can't afford the, 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 what it would cost us to play that confession song. But anyway, <laughs> I'm not even sure this is a confession. That's how that's how bad this is. Okay. I told you earlier at the beginning of the episode that I may have been guilty of violating the rule, that I was going to yes. make a confession. I tried to lump you in with me, but I told you it was my problem, right? Yes. So I'm going to explain. In a recent appellate decision that is not even officially reported, so to do, be honest with y'all, I am sharing this with you and you didn't even I have didn't to. even have to. You couldn't even find it if you wanted to. The only people that would know about it are me and the parties. But anyway, in a that opinion, the defendant claimed that I had impermissibly become involved with the plea negotiations. Now, this case is representative of a bunch of other cases that we that are in our outline, and that's probably a good idea just to talk about anyway. And you can make fun of me, and that's fine. I was attempting to make the record as to what plea offer might be made available to this defendant in the case that the defendant who was charged with the offense that had very significant potential sentence and he had recidivism notice. I wanted to make sure that he was aware and if there was any plea offer he could take now or not. I, I didn't care the answer. I just, is there one on the table? The prosecutor made an offer that was better than any other offer the defendant had ever had. Reducing charges, reducing sentences, and all of that. More favorable, I think, is the way the appellate courts looked at it. The defendant immediately and obviously rejected the offer. Now, for some reason, the defense counsel in that trial, of course, this is not a part of the appellate record, prior to the part they decided to start you know, quoting me from, had said, Judge, there's no reason to put an, a plea offer on the table. He has repeatedly told me he's not willing to plead to anything. You see, again, I wanted to make sure it was on the record to make sure I had coverage in the event this case was appealed. So anyway, so the... the Se seems like you're justifying your actions, Wade, but go ahead. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so, I mean, the offer was more, more favorable. The case was tried. The defendant was convicted on one count and acquitted on another count in a bench trial. So I was aware of all this, and he was acquitted on one and convicted of one in a bench trial. Pellet court said that not only 
must harm be found, but there must be error to warrant a reversal. So in this case, they did one of those uh, pretermitting whether there was a violation of law or not, which really is a punt because I want them to go, no, no, this was good. But no, no, they said, well, let's put that aside because the defendant didn't plead guilty. So he cannot be said to have entered an involuntary plea. The cases, the larger point is, number one, I was not reversed. And number two, <laughs> if the alleged participation did not result in a guilty plea being entered, it cannot be said that the judge caused an involuntary plea to be entered. So if you're hearing this on a motion for new trial, motion to withdraw, whatever, post-trial maybe or post-conviction, then more likely than not, if there was not a plea entered, and there are some cases cited in there, if there's not a plea entered, you're not going to be found to have created an involuntary plea. That may seem self-evident, but it's easy for us to grade our own paper and say, wow, I wish I hadn't said that. And it turns out that you weren't even all that convincing. So even you weren't even good at coercion. <laughs> exactly. You're just not good at it. <laughs> so, folks, thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We have flippantly mentioned a few times that having your words taken down by a court reporter is a pretty humbling experience. Tane and I have found out the hard way that putting your voices on a podcast is a pretty humbling experience, especially when you forget verbs and stuff. <laughs> Connectors, conjunctions, whatever. But making the record clear is seriously real important. Yep. So make sure you never become involved in the plea negotiation process. You can and must advise defendants of the maximum potential sentences, and you're allowed to let the parties know whether you will accept a tendered plea negotiation. But do not make a counteroffer. Let the parties negotiate everything and let the plea agreement uh, be the plea agreement between the parties and then rule on what they negotiate. As we have noted, this episode is a product of requests made by several of our listeners in one way or another. Please continue to help us by you providing us input and suggestions for episode topics, and you can do that at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You can always visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for these episode notes and all of the other episode notes from all the other episodes. So, folks, again, thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And remember, sometimes it's better to remain silent and let people think you are a fool than to speak and to prove them correct. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Paget and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Hey, when do we drop the mics, Wade? Actually, these are expensive mics. Maybe we should just lay them down gently. 
Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.